0: It is good to be with you again. Thank you very much for, uh, well, I don't know how much you folks had in the idea of me being here twice in a row. Maybe there was a loud outcry against it, but uh, but here we are again in any case. In a certain sense, I feel as though I should begin by saying uh, part two. Uh, if you were here last week, then you know we began to talk a little bit about the Doctrine of the Trinity we're going to talk a little bit more about, more about that today, building a little bit on what, uh, what I spoke about last week. So could I begin by praying for us as we look here? Living God, in Jesus' name, by the power of your Spirit, would you carry us beyond the weakness of my words? Will you move us past the distractions and frailties of our hearts. And will you show us a life that is life indeed and invite us in. We give you thanks in Jesus's name. Amen. Amen. So let me, you know, let me tell you uh, uh, g- g- sort of the, the, the speedy version of what we did last week. Some of you were here and might remember this. Some of you were here and might have dozed off. Uh, some of you might not have been here. So, um, uh, just a word about what we did last week. Um, I, I began to talk a little bit last week about what it might mean to talk about Trinitarian life, Christian life that is rooted in the Trinity before there was a doctrine of the Trinity. That's so what we talked about some last week. What does it mean to live a Christian or Trinitarian life? before there's a doctrine of the Trinity. And so we spent some time in the Gospels primarily thinking about how the disciples encountered Jesus, came to believe that he's Messiah, but then also discovered that they seemed to get more than they bargained for when they got this Jesus. Because he was constantly talking about, talking to, Hearing from the one he called Father. So that really his whole identity seemed to be rooted in the one he called Father. So in a certain sense, of course, we saw last time, it's pretty clear that he was himself God. But he wasn't exactly God. He was the Son of God who was one with the Father, but also distinct from the Father, right? Here's the problem. He never really went out of his way to explain all that. The disciples encountered it, you might say. They met the Trinity before they got a good, solid teaching on it. All right. I'd like us to explore that a little bit more today. That same sort of idea going on. Let me say, if we were, if I were going to be here three weeks, then today would be the day where we would see Jesus connected to the Holy Spirit as well. We are not going to go there. Um, Instead, I'll mention some things that we could have said if we were going to draw the Holy Spirit in. One could easily do that if we had a little more time and so forth. But we're not going to focus much on it. But, but remember some things. One one could pretty easily recall the role that the Holy Spirit played in all sorts of aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. You might remember, of course, the way that people talked about the Holy Spirit long before a doctrine of the Holy Spirit was explained. So I, you, you remember some of this, right? Do you remember that when Mary first hears from an angel that something really shocking is going to happen. Do you remember what she hears? The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Rather scary words for a teenage girl to hear. Um especially this language about Holy Spirit, which we have at least some foundation for understanding. And Mary did not. But the angel spoke that way. Or again, remember the way that John the Baptist describes his own relationship with his cousin Jesus, which includes some surprising elements. John the Baptist in John 1. John says, I myself did not know him as the Messiah or something, right? I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water, who would that be? That's God in some way, right? The one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who were baptized with the Holy Spirit. you hear that? John the Baptist may have scratched his head. Oh, the Spirit come down, and the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure about all the details there. But when God tells you that's what to keep an eye out for, you keep an eye out for it. Get the idea? Or again, right? Um, You you think about Jesus toward the end of his life, having zoomed through his ministry. um, We think about Jesus in the upper room when he's talking to the disciples. He's already given them some hint that he's going to be leaving. They're pretty horrified by that. You understand why? You remember one of many things Jesus says that are of interest to us. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Remember all that? In a moment of high anxiety, Jesus says, the Spirit will come. And you can sort of imagine the disciples saying, in certain ways, you see this in the text, the the holy who? What's going on? Right? There's not an explanation. There's instead a promise that something's going to happen that you won't get, but don't worry about that, because big things are going to happen. Of course, it all comes to a head, you might say, after Jesus is raised from the dead, when his big message to the apostles, right? The Messiah crucified, we didn't get that. But now he's raised from the dead, he's appeared, he's with us, he's meeting with us, and his message to them is, do you remember? Wait. Sit tight. Stay in Jerusalem. Because power from on high is about to come upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses. Do you remember that? And again, I imagine them saying, don't really get this but he's doing it again right there are larger things happening than the disciples understood of course pentecost comes the holy spirit comes with power things start to happen in pretty exciting ways all right big things going on you'll notice in none of these am i trying to prove to a church called trinity christian reformed church that there's the trinity in the bible I'm not trying to show that what i'm interested in is The way in which, sometimes elusively, usually sort of in passing, the Son, the Father, the Spirit, this sort of triad, get introduced along the way, without much doctrinal explanation to go. They met God, Father, Son, and Spirit, before they knew that God was Father, Son, and Spirit. You with me? Does that make sense? So these are not doctrines that we've been talking about. Um, They will become doctrines over time. It takes several centuries, in fact, for the church to work out some of the doctrinal details. For them, you might say, to unpack aspects of this encounter with a God who is bigger, larger, more complex than we might have guessed. It takes several centuries to unpack that and to formulate it in a way that that would count as what we might think of as uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Now, we're going to focus on that for just a minute, and then we're going to look at a text in the New Testament. But think with me about this, right? What takes place when the doctrine of the trinity is formulated over the centuries is not something that replaces the lived reality of the trinity, right? It's something that reminds us of the lived reality of the trinity. The aim of the doctrine is not so that you can learn a doctrine and pass the test that you have to take in order to get to heaven or something like that, no, of course not. The aim of the doctrine is precisely to bring out in its fullness something that was implicit and that we'd encountered and that we'd lived in, but you might not notice if you don't pay careful attention. So, think about what the fullness of that doctrine looks like. I'm just going to summarize it. Uh, not many technical terms or anything, but you'll get the idea. Christians said, but more and more, as, as, uh, as the doctrine gets an established form, Christians found themselves talking about the Son of God as an eternal reality. Now, you know, you get that in the Bible itself, right? And we, we, it would not be hard to, to talk about that. But the idea of an eternal, not just an eternal God, which all Jews would have known, that kind of makes sense, but an eternal sonship, right that when you're meeting jesus you're in it seems as though you're meeting someone who is intentionally identified as the Son of God or as God the Son, right as the only begotten of the Father, but with a begottenness, a coming from the Father that does not seem to begin when he's born. But you remember all sorts of references to things, to the glory I had with you before the foundations of the world, things like that. You remember that? So all sorts of things going on. A sonship that somehow pre-exists Jesus as he walks around here on planet Earth. A sonship, in fact, that seems to pre-exist planet Earth. Something older than creation. Something deeper. There is a sonship like that. The day comes when that eternal son of the father becomes the son of Mary. But Jesus, or should we say rather, the son of God, does not come into existence when he is born of Mary, or when he's conceived of Mary, right? Instead, Eternally there, the eternal Son becomes the incarnate Son for us and for our salvation. You with me? Okay? That's just about the Son. As the doctrine gets filled out, we find ourselves saying the same sort of thing about the Father. We're not surprised by that. If if there's an eternal Sonship, if, if God the Son exists forever, then apparently God the Father does as well. And his fatherhood, God as father, does not refer primarily to his having adopted children like us. God doesn't become father because he takes us as his children. God is not father because he creates a world, sort of fathers the whole universe. If you follow the metaphor, of course... You might say everything comes from God, so he's like a father in that way. But that's not the way that father language is used in the New Testament, right? In some way, when we are thinking about God as father, we're thinking about this beginningless relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The whole reason we can become children of God is because God had a son before the world was made. And we enter into that. You with me? Does this make sense? Even with respect to the Holy Spirit, right? last, uh, Last piece of the puzzle. There is, as the doctrine gets spelled out more fully, we become aware of this eternal relation between the Father and the Spirit with the Son sometimes included in there too. This is a little more elusive because, of course, Spirit is not itself a relational word, right? If you say father, it seems as though you've presupposed a son. If you say son, you've presupposed a father. Spirit just kind of, it just sort of sits there. So as a name, it's not quite so immediately relational. But of course, the spirit is also, and always, Old Testament, New Testament, both, the spirit is always the spirit of God, So it does seem as though there's some sort of relationship presupposed. And the more we enter into that, the more we find the Holy Spirit portrayed in Scripture as the one who is always bearing witness away from himself. The Spirit isn't just sort of the Spirit, stand up and salute or something like that. Instead, it's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of the Lord. It's something like this, always directed toward this other so that the relationship seems to be built in. This is somewhat technical theology now, right? Technical doctrine. But there's an eternal father and an eternal son and an eternal spirit who, now how shall we say it? Who are the reality that makes the universe. Who are the reality behind all things, Christians say. Remember, the doctrine doesn't replace the lived experience of the disciples and the church, and so on. Instead, the doctrine is designed to remind us of the depth of that experience. What lies behind it? It's not just me with my Savior. Instead, it turns out that my Savior is the eternal God who has a Father and who bears the Spirit and all of us together is somehow what we mean when we talk about salvation. It's pretty big news, right? Occasionally, we get glimpses of this sort of colossal, summarized depth in the New Testament itself. So, can I ask us? I know you thought I was going to just set the Bible aside for today. No, no. Let's um, let's look together at one text. Where we get uh, some hints like this that comes from Galatians chapter 4. So, this is the text here that we'll, we'll look at uh, together for today. I'm going to read through the whole thing and then we'll go back and we'll focus on one piece of it as of particular interest. In this context, is it worth saying, as this is the beginning of Galatians 4, um, Galatians, a letter where Paul is pretty intent on defending the gospel? What is the gospel? How does it work? We're not going to go into detail on that. But note that Paul's whole aim in this letter is to make sure we get the gospel and get it right. All right. As he's explaining that then, he uses an illustration that's going to open out in some interesting directions. Uh, Galatians 4. I mean, Paul says, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. So he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's thinking, of course, about the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Something new has happened. So then he goes on. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. One more verse in this sort of section. Here's the way Paul summarizes this then. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All right. You get the idea. This is the gospel. Anything that gets summarized like that. <laughs> you are no longer a slave. You're a son. And that means an of everything that God had. Okay, that's good news. That's gospel, right? But I am interested, especially in the way, that Paul frames this gospel that he is fighting for, that that he's committed to, that he says, we've got to have this or we've lost everything. I'm especially interested in the way that this comes together in verses 4 to 6. So let's go back to that little passage in the middle, verses 4 to 6. So you see here again, the fullness of time language, where all of a sudden it turns out that we are, Knee-deep, no, maybe we're up to our necks in Trinitarian life. Do you notice that? Notice three things, at least, about these verses. Verses 4 to 6 here of Galatians 4. Notice in the first place, if I can put it this way, it's background in eternity. Do you notice that Paul does not say that God created a son in order to save the world, right? There's something about the son being sent forth by God that presupposes that the son was there before the sending forth took place. That's why the father could send the son, because the father and the son were there together. You notice that? And the same sort of language, of course, uh, uh, toward the... uh, um, in the, in the last lines here, where we have God sending the Spirit in the same way. You have that idea? Remember the depth that's behind what takes place in the gospel. That depth is any, the eternal reality of the Trinity itself. All right, that's all in the background here, I take it. Notice as well, same verses. Notice as well what you might call the distinctively Trinitarian character of the unity of God in this text. So in a certain sense, of course, there's real diversity here, right? We've got the sender, God. We've got the sent forth, the Son. A little later on, we've got this sent forth, the Spirit, of course. But do you notice that Paul goes out of his way to highlight the sense in which these things all fit together in a way that you cannot untangle? Do you see, for example, how it is that we are told that God sent forth his son and then further down, God has sent the spirit? Can I just say, I'm not sure why it is that the translators of the ESV here, um, I'm not sure why they changed sent forth to sent, but the verb is the same in the original language. What we're told very specifically is God sent forth this and God sent forth that. Two sendings that are described in identical language with the sort of parallelism that seems to unite them. They're two, but they also are identical or they're intertwined. Intertwined enough that when God, in the first place, sends His Son, by the time we get to the second sending down toward the bottom, God has sent the Spirit, who is the Spirit of the Son. Can you hear the sending, sort of converging all in one here? Get the idea? There is a kind of um, a kind of strangeness. In the unity of God acting to save the world through the Trinitarian diversity of God by which the world is saved. And this gets pretty intentionally highlighted here, right? One more thing about this text I want us to see, and then we'll kind of draw it together. Do you notice its direct connection to you and me? Do you notice that? Do you notice, in fact, uh, think about the first sending, God sent forth his son. Notice the structure of that sentence, really the first four lines, right? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that me right receive a adoption as sons. Um, those who attend to structural issues in biblical texts like this note that In the ancient world, it was very common to put together a sentence like this in what they called a chiastic form. All right, that's about as technical as it gets for today. Uh, Chi is a Greek letter that is an X, right? And so a chiastic structure is one that, think about how an X works, right? One in which you sort of go in one direction and then you back out. You say something, you say something else, then you say that second thing again, and then you go back to the first thing. You get the idea? Can you see that at work here? God sent his son of a woman under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that they can become sons. You see the connection there? A connection that especially highlights the linkage between the son, capital S, who is sent forth, and the sonship by adoption that belongs to you. Of course, we'd say sons and daughters, right? Nothing wrong with that. But it's nice to use the son language just so that we can see the linkage, which very clearly is in in Paul's mind here. You see what I mean? Then we get the same thing as we get down into that last verse, when by virtue of this sonship, God sends the spirit, but not just the spirit, it's the spirit of the son so that You and I can say, Father, we can be sons because the Son, by virtue of the Spirit, has connected us to the Father. You see the the link that's going on there? Without Trinitarian life, this becomes gobbledygook. But once we've understood the depth, the foundation, the background of the Trinity, we find ourselves saying, oh my goodness, God has given his son in the power of the spirit so that we, through the power of the spirit, can become sons of that father. We are invited in, you might say. Are you with me? Can you see what I'm doing here? It's doctrine. Or is it? Is it something deeper than doctrine? Is it something more going on? Here's way that I would summarize it, right? Um, in uh, two sentences, I suppose, if they are sentences. But something like this. Christians always say when they're thinking wisely and well about Trinitarian doctrine and how it connects to the reality that God's doing in the world, Christians always say the eternal Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, becomes the incarnate Son in order to make you adopted sons. You see the linkage? Or again, the eternal Spirit, ever proceeding from the Father, became the poured out Spirit at Pentecost, so that through the power of the Spirit, you can call God Father. Abba, you know, that intimate term of endearment. Father in that way. The Trinity is not just a doctrine. It's an account somehow of the full richness of what God has done in the gospel, precisely so that we can enter into it fully. All right. Can I offer one um, analogy, illustration, one suggestion uh, as we conclude? Can I tell you, I'm a little nervous about this, so you may have to work with me on it. I suspect that some of you may be busy this evening. Occupied, perhaps, with some sort of kerfluffle involving big men crashing into one another. All right, the Super Bowl is tonight. Um, Micah is aware that I was going to mention the Super Bowl at the end. That's part of the reason I think that he came today. How are we, how's the Super Bowl, you know, theological? All right. Uh, think with me just for a second about the excitement of uh, the Super Bowl. But now here's where you've got to become a little bit imaginative. Suppose you were able to go to the Super Bowl. Suppose you were there in person. Suppose that somehow when you went, you had the opportunity to ride on the bus with the eagles. Have dinner with them to get to know Jalen Hurts or, you know, whoever your hero is there. If you don't have heroes on the eagles, wait for another year. The sermon will work better for you, I suppose. Um, But I suppose you were able to interact with them some. All right, now here's where it gets kind of strange. And imagine, what would it be like if listening in on their conversation and things like that, what you heard them talking about was not just the game that they're playing tonight suppose what you heard them talking about made reference to some sort of larger game some sort of contest that seems as though it's bigger than this one game no it's bigger than a league it's bigger than sports it's it's like some sort of cosmic reality suppose We found them talking as though what they were doing now is directly connected to this colossal, universal, eternal conflict, combat. Okay, is it weird now? You see what I've got in mind? Imagine overhearing that. You don't understand the details. But imagine something like that being true. Let me quickly pause and say I'm not suggesting that it is true. Let's not go too far with our fly, eagles fly. Okay, but if you heard something like that, I wonder whether you would not find yourself more interested in the details of the exciting game tonight precisely because it opens out into a larger reality. You see what I mean? And a reality... That you are invited into. Do what you like with the Super Bowl illustration. (laughs) But. Salvation. Has been accomplished. In one grand exciting moment. When the son of God. By the power of the spirit. Became a man. And died for the sins of the world. Exciting moments. But that's not the whole ball game, because the aim of that is precisely to invite you and me into a life, a fellowship, the Trinitarian reality that is older and larger than the Milky Way. Something big is gone on, and salvation. Is the pathway into it. Right. Can I suggest. That the son of God. Today. Invites us into that. Kind of reality. Here is a sign. Of the invitation. That he gives. Here's the form the invitation takes. This is my body. Take. Eat. Friends, enter into the life of the triune God. Let me pray for us. Living God, bear us up. Draw us in. Draw us into depths that we do not know. But that you have made known. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.